Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a God who loves us dearly and who has poured out oceans and oceans of grace on us. Thank you for your love. Thank you for drawing us to Christ. And thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that it nourishes us. Thank you for the way that it strengthens and encourages us. And we thank you for the ways that it even convicts us and challenges us to grow in Christ's likeness. Our Father, we ask that as we study your word today, that you would draw us ever nearer to Christ, that you would give us a correct view, a, per, a correct perspective of ourselves, and a high and glorious view of you, in order that we would see the glory of Christ reflected in your word. Strengthen us and encourage us today, O Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. Give us understanding. Give us a desire to act based on what you say for the glory of Christ. In his name, amen. Well, again, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to Psalm 24. If you don't have a Bible, and I realize that some of you may not, uh, there are some great websites where you can find a Bible. Uh, I personally recommend uh, blueletterbible.org. Uh, that's a great website where you can choose which uh, translation, which which uh, you know translation you prefer to study out of. Um, I preach out of the NASB, and you can find that on there. Or uh, the Literal Word app also has uh, the NASB. It's a great app. Has some great features on it. Uh, that's one that I, I strongly recommend. You can find it in the Google Play Store or in the Apple Store. But today we're going to be looking at Psalm 24. And this psalm deals with the most important question that a person can ask. You know, we're, we're confronted by many questions throughout life. You know, what, what am I going to do with my life? What am I going to do to support myself? What will bring me the greatest sense of comfort? What will give me the greatest sense of accomplishment in life? You know, these are some examples of very important questions that we all ask ourselves. Uh, but there's one question that towers above all these very important questions, a question that actually many are hesitant to ask because there's one answer that can make us very uncomfortable and there's only one answer. Uh, sometimes it's a question that people just simply refuse to ask because it's such an important question. They feel like it's better to just put it off. But the most important question that a person can ask is simply this, who can stand before a holy and righteous God? Who can stand before a holy and righteous God? See, if God is holy, then God cannot tolerate sin. And if God is righteous, then he must punish all sin. And if he's so powerful that he can create the, the, the earth and the universe and everything that exists just with the power of his speech, just by speaking it into existence, then nobody can overpower or resist his righteous judgment against sin. If God is holy and righteous, friend, who can stand before him? If he's all-knowing and he's all-powerful, 
Who can possibly hope to escape the righteous outpouring of his judgment against sin? Psalm 24 deals with this profound question, and it gives us the answer. In Psalm 24, God brings us to a place where we are forced to lay all of our busyness aside and to stop and just consider this question and all of the implications of the answer. Given the reality that every single one of us is going to stand before God one day, there is no other question. In fact, there there is no other issue that is more worthy of our thoughtful consideration and contemplation than this one because it has everything to do with where each of us will spend all of eternity, respectively and individually. While Psalm 24 challenges us and and pushes us into this place where we have to consider this very important question, it also gives us hope. It also gives us hope. The same God who created us and who knows us better than we know ourselves is a God who knows how to meet us in our brokenness and in our moments of need. So while this psalm does lead us to a place of brokenness, a place where uh, we're able to recognize what our greatest need truly is, God will be there to meet us in that place. So before we address the question of who can stand before this this holy and righteous, all-powerful, all-knowing God, we have to consider the God before whom every single one of us is going to stand. We must be brought to see the nature of this, this king who the psalmist says in this verse is the king of all glory. That's what the first section of the psalm is going to deal with, the nature of this God. The second section of the psalm asks who may stand before this king of glory. And the third section deals with the work and the coming of this king of all glory. So we start by looking at who God is. Let's start with verses 1 and 2. It says, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Perhaps, perhaps the most important thing that we can know about God is what this psalm tells us from the outset, that everything, everything belongs to God because he created it. You think that anything belongs to you? Uh, you don't even own yourself. Uh, the idea that you own yourself is just an illusion, That's certainly not a biblical idea. You don't own anything. I don't own anything. None of it is ultimately ours. What we have, what we've been made stewards over, it's just been given to us, but only for a time, only for a season. In in 100 years, anything that you consider to be your own right now is either going to be uh, in somebody else's possession, somebody else is going to have it, or it's going to be destroyed in one way or another. And that includes even our physical bodies, by the way. What about the air that we breathe? You think that's yours? It's not. 
That error is going to still be around long after you and I are gone, friend. Everything was created by God, and thus, everything belongs to God. God created every square inch of the earth. He created every mountain, every tree, every valley, every desert. He created the lakes, the rivers, the oceans. He created the highest mountain peak and the lowest depths of the ocean and everything in between. And it all belongs to him. He created you and he created me. And so we belong to him, whether you like that notion or not. He owns every person, regardless of their nationality, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their social status, regardless of their gender, regardless of anything. God owns it all. You know, this morning I was having kind of a back-and-forth dialogue with a non-believer on Twitter who said that he would believe in God if God would just take the coronavirus away. But my friend, that is not the way it works. That is not the way it works. We, We don't hold God to our terms and conditions. We don't hold him to our standards. Rather, our responsibility, because he owns us, is to submit ourselves to his terms and conditions. See, the argument that, you know, if God was real, he wouldn't allow evil. Well, let let me break it down to, to show you how silly that argument is. Let's say, let me, let me give you an example of something that I really hate. I really hate fudge. I hate chocolate cake with, with fudge, you know, uh, frosting all over it. Now, you could reduce that argument that if God was real, he'd take the coronavirus away down to, well, if God was real, he'd do away with chocolate cake. It's a silly argument. It does not make any sense. No, we don't have the right to subject God to our standards. Rather, our responsibility, because he owns us, is to subject ourselves entirely to his standards, to his standards alone. Understanding this simple fact is a a good, solid step in the direction of wisdom. Because understanding this simple fact reminds us that because we don't belong to ourselves, we don't get to just live however we want and do whatever we please, not without there being some very, very serious repercussions and consequences. We don't have the right to say, you know, this is good and this is bad, apart from what God's word reveals about it. No, understanding that God owns everything reminds us that our attitudes and our actions matter. How we live our lives matters because there are things that please God. How we live our lives matters. There are things that displease God. How we live our lives matters. So understanding that we personally belong to God and thus must give an account for our lives one day before him. It's where we begin to understand how to live in a way that pleases him. So this is actually a text, what we see here in in verse 1, is actually a text that Paul quotes in his first letter to the church in Corinth. 
In the first century, the church in Corinth was kind of confused. You know, they're faced with the difficulty of navigating the Christian life in a secular world. And one of the problems that they ran into in the city of Corinth dealt with the issue of eating meat that had been sacrificed to demonic pagan idols. Uh, If you were to wander through the streets of Corinth in the first century, you'd see meat being sold all over the place. And the reality was that a good portion of the meat that you'd see for sale, that that people were buying and that people were eating, uh, had come from animals that had been sacrificed to pagan gods in pagan temples. So the question that they were confronted with, the, the, the question that they had to wrestle with, was whether or not they, as Christians, should be eating this meat that was sacrificed to idols. Now, of course, they shouldn't participate in those sacrificial rituals uh, that the pagans um, engaged in. Paul instructed them to avoid such things. He writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Now that's the easy part of the question to answer. You can't participate in these things. You, you can't, you, can't uh, you know, be there sacrificing the animal yourself. You can't be worshiping alongside these people. The tougher question That was the easy part. The tougher question was whether or not they could purchase and consume meat from a pagan sacrificial ritual. And Paul says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 25 and 26. He says, eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience's sake. For, so he's given the reason now, for the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. So Paul's saying go ahead and eat that filet mignon. You know, enjoy that steak. You know, eat it until your, your heart's content. Why? Because the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. So, so Paul concludes in verse 31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So that steak may have come from a pagan ritual. It, it very well could have. But the demonic forces to which it was sacrificed have no claim on that stake. Who does? Only God. God does. The, the, the fact that it was sacrificed to these idols doesn't change the fact that it is still God's. So the principle here is that even if something is misused for terrible or evil purposes, it still belongs to God. And thus, we need not abstain from enjoying the things of this world. But here's the thing. We're free to enjoy them in the context that God intended them to be enjoyed in. We run into trouble and we sin when we enjoy the things of the world in a way or within a context that God did not intend. No, we're free to use and to enjoy the things of this world as God intended. But this principle obviously doesn't just apply to food. I mean, we can misuse all kinds of things. We can take something that's good and, uh, and put it into the wrong context, and we do that all the time. It doesn't change the fact that God created that thing, that he owns that thing, and that those things can still be enjoyed and used for the glory of God. Maybe, friend, maybe as you consider your life, you feel like you have so misused the life that God has given you that God would no longer want you. 
And I'm here today to assure you that that is not the case. You may be thinking that you've done so much wrong that God could never forgive you, that he could never find pleasure in anything you do. Maybe you feel like you have sacrificed so much time, so much energy, so much money, so much time at the altars of sinful worldly pleasures that God could never love you. But I want you to know, friend, that that is simply not the case. God has created you in his own image, and there is nothing that you can do to change or to escape that reality. No matter who you are, no matter what you have done, God cares about you. God cares about you. Your, your life and how you live your life matters to him. Your heart matters to him. But if you find yourself today far away from God or, or denying that God exists because you want the coronavirus to go away, you need to be confronted with the reality, number one, that you will stand before God one day. But number two, the reality of what he wants from you. Indeed, what he expects and what he demands of you. If you are alive and breathing and listening to the words I speak, it is not too late for you to consider what is necessary to please God and what is necessary if you are to stand in his presence. Who can stand before this holy and righteous God? That's actually the question that David addresses next. Let's look at verses 3 to 6 together. David writes, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. Selah. Now, Selah, we're not exactly sure what that means, but we're pretty sure that it means something like, think about it, meditate on this. It could even mean something close to amen, uh, but, it, but it's, it's telling us to pause and to think about what he has written. So David moves from declaring who God is to asking this very, very important question, which we find in verse 3. What we see here is that God himself is not only holy, but so is his dwelling place. And when we say that it's holy, we mean that it's set apart. Uh, we mean that it's clean, that it's undefiled. What could possibly make it not clean? What could possibly cause it to be defiled? Sin. Sin would cause it to be defiled. Now, if you've ever had a new carpet, installed in your home. Maybe when you were growing up, your parents got a new carpet. You probably understand the concept of preserving the cleanness of the carpet. You can imagine that a parent would warn their kids very sternly about taking their shoes off before they come into the house and start tracking dirt and mud and all kinds of things all over the new carpet. Why didn't they have that same rule and that same sternness in place with the old carpet? 
because the old carpet was worn out and, and dirty already. But the kids are not allowed to come in with filthy shoes with the new carpet as a means of preserving the carpet and keeping it undefiled as long as possible. And this, friend, is the same reason that God will not allow defilement into heaven. It simply isn't allowed in because sin would defile his glorious heaven. And just like mom and dad make the the, the stern rule and enforce the stern rule of taking off shoes before tracking mud through the house, God has some very specific requirements about who can step foot into his dwelling place, into his heaven, because he will not allow it to be defiled by sin. So what we see is that David lists four things, four very specific criteria that the person who will stand before him in his presence must meet. Look at verse 4 with me. What's the first thing that God demands from the person who would ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place? According to verse 4, the first thing, the first criteria is that we must have clean hands. Now, what does it mean to have clean hands? Well, it doesn't mean that you have to have taken a shower. It doesn't mean that you have to be using hand sanitizer regularly. Uh, God is not all that concerned about whether you use hand sanitizer. This isn't referring to literal physical hands. Uh, This is talking about having spiritually dirty hands. Having hands that have been defiled, corrupted by sin by sinful actions. It's referring to our actions, sins that we have committed, sins that we are guilty of. Now imagine for a second that you have white gloves for each of your hands, one on each hand, and every time you sin, sin is like ink that leaves a stain on those gloves. I mean, even if you were to start just today off with pure white gloves, by the end of the day, they would not be white any longer. The stain of sin would cover them. You wouldn't have white gloves. You wouldn't even have kind of grayish gloves. No, your gloves would be pitch black from the ink. And not only that, but your gloves would be so saturated with ink that black ink would be dripping everywhere from them. And that's just one day. The point is, friends, that every sin that we've ever been guilty of has left a stain on us. On our hands. We've sinned against God in thought, in word, and in deed. And we've fallen terribly short of God's perfect, holy standards, and we've fallen short in every way imaginable. And we've done so both by nature and by choice. The stain of every sin that we have committed stains our hands. One day's worth of sin would render us a million times disqualified to enter God's holy dwelling place. How much more so would the stains of all the sins we have ever committed over the course of our lifetimes disqualify us? Now, if we're being honest, we don't have clean hands. We don't have clean hands. And if that makes you a bit uneasy, or uncomfortable, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Stick around. The second criteria that we see here in in verse 4 for entering God's holy place is having a pure heart. 
Now, this isn't talking about our actions. This is talking about our inward life. It's talking about our motivations and, and the things that drive us to do the things that we do. It's, it's not good enough to just be clean on the outside with God. What we see here is that he also demands that the inside be clean as well. At one point in his earthly ministry, Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day, he said, quote, uh, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness, end quote. That's a pretty steep accusation. A whitewashed tomb would be a tomb that has been taken care of immaculately on the outside. There's no blemish, no dirt on the outside. But Jesus says, what about the inside? What about the inside? The, the outside might look clean, but what about the inside? Jesus says they look clean on the outside, but on the inside they are filled with every uncleanness. They are filled with sin. They are filled with death. They are filled with decay. And the truth of the matter is, friends, even if we are outwardly the most morally upstanding people in our neighborhood, or in our city, or in our state, or in our country, or even the most morally upstanding person in the whole world, that's only outward. That's only outward. Inwardly, our hearts are not pure. Even the desire to sin is itself sin. And we have all desired sin at one point or another. God sees our thoughts. God sees our motivations. We're reminded in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, that the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The truth of the matter is that, friend, we are morally impure we are dirty and we are unholy, both outwardly and inwardly. And this should make all of us pause and, and to feel very uneasy and uncomfortable. But stick around because David isn't done just yet. Let's go to the third criteria that he lays out for us. The third criteria is that the one who enters his holy place has not lifted his soul up to falsehood. Now this criteria is dealing with uh, the, the greatest commandment of all, which is that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. Uh, when you lift your soul up to something, it means you're, you're worshiping that thing. Have you done that? Have you done this greatest commandment? Have you loved the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? The answer is no. No, you have not. And neither have I. In fact, neither one of us has loved God in that way for one second combined in our lives. Our love for God has never been even close to the love for God that Jesus had. So if, if Jesus fulfilled this commandment, we can be sure that we didn't. No, we have not loved the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. See, to, to lift up our souls means to worship. And the thing that we love most in life is what we worship in any given moment. The reality is that we have all worshiped ourselves in various ways. 
and at various times in our lives. Every time we insist on doing things our way instead of God's way, we have essentially worshipped ourselves. Every time we have rejected a teaching of Scripture because it has made us feel uncomfortable, we have worshipped ourselves. To say that if God is real, he would take away the coronavirus is to worship ourselves. Once again, we have no choice but to confess our guilt before God. To confess the fact that we fall far short of this criteria. Now, while the third criteria deals with how we relate to God, the fourth criteria, uh, the final criteria here, deals with how we relate to others, how we relate to our neighbor. Have we loved them as we love ourselves, as the second greatest commandment instructs? Have we been truthful with people all along? The answer is again, no, we have not. We just haven't. We've fallen so far short of this mark, I don't think it requires any further explanation. We've all lied. We've all, done, we've all said and done things to protect our own best interests. Verse 5 tells us that the reward for anyone who does live up to this criteria, he says, uh, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Now you might say, that's a A very worthy reward. That's a a great reward. But the bar is set so impossibly high. Why would God set the bar for this reward so impossibly high so that I could never have a chance of qualifying for this great blessing, this great reward that God offers? And the answer is so that you will stop looking to yourself and trusting in yourself before God. It's so that you will lose every sense of confidence that you have ever had in your standing before God and that you will look for some way to be reconciled to God outside of yourself. See, this fourth verse has described the person who's pleasing to God. And the terrifying reality, friend, is that every single one of us has fallen terribly short of this standard in every way possible. If if we take these standards at face value, if we take them as seriously as we should, what we are brought to is actually, ironically, a wonderful place. A wonderful place. It's It's a wonderful place because it's a place where we can clearly see that we have no basis for having any confidence in our own righteousness or our own sense of goodness before God. We cannot trust in ourselves. It's a wonderful place because now we realize that we must seek something other than ourselves, outside of ourselves, as a basis for entering into God's holy place. It's a wonderful place because this has brought us to a very humbling place, a place where we see the woeful, terrible depths of our sin. Now you might be wondering, what could possibly be wonderful about seeing the depths of our sin? And the answer is that it's only when we understand and see the great depths of our sin that we see and start to understand, just start to understand the unfathomably great heights and widths of God's grace. 
If you have never believed savingly in the Lord Jesus Christ, can you honestly say that you have met the criteria that David has laid out here? How will you, friend, how will you stand before a holy, righteous God? As you consider these questions, let me tell you why you must repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The truth of the matter is that Jesus did have clean hands. Peter tells us that Jesus was a lamb unblemished and spotless, which means he had no sin. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says of Jesus, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. That means that he never even desired to sin. That means his heart was pure. His hands were clean. His heart was pure. He never desired sin. And thus we can confidently say that he never lifted his soul to what was false. And he never swore falsely. He never lied. So what you must see, friend, is that Jesus Christ and Christ alone has met these four requirements. And just as verse 5 promises, therefore, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. It's talking about the resurrection. See, the gospel starts with understanding that Jesus Christ alone lived up to this criteria, that he alone lived a perfectly sinless life, upholding and fulfilling all the demands of God's holy standards, never failing to do so for even one nanosecond. But he did more than just live a sinless, blameless life. As the spotless lamb, he also took upon himself the sins of all who would trust in him alone, putting their confidence for salvation and reconciliation not in themselves, not even a little bit in themselves, but entirely on Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this of Jesus and what the Father did on Calvary. It says, He made Him, the Father made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. What this means, friend, is that our sins, the sins of all who believe, were imputed, they were, they were credited or accounted to Christ, while His perfect righteousness his upholding of all of God's criteria for standing in his holy place was imputed to all who believe in Christ savingly. See, when Jesus was on the cross, when he redeemed us, he stood in our place as our substitute so that we may stand in God's place. In redeeming us, God doesn't just leave us right where we are. Rather, He fills us with His Holy Spirit, transforming us more and more into the likeness of Christ, replacing our desires to do what is evil, replacing our desires to do what is sinful with desires to do what is good and righteous and pleasing to God. That's why verse 6 says, this is the generation of those who seek Him. I'm not talking about an individual, we're talking about a group of people now. This is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek your face, even Jacob 
Selah. See, we're not just talking about an individual. We're talking about a group of people here. We're talking about the people that Jesus died to redeem. All who would believe in him. We're talking about these people doing something that is actually contrary to their nature. They are seeking God's face, which Scripture is very clear, nobody does. So why is it that they're doing it? It's the work of God in their lives. It's God's grace working in their lives, changing their nature so that they will do things that by nature they would not do. See, the relationship that we have with Christ through faith in Him is one in which we become partakers of the divine nature, as Peter explains. That's why we grow in the likeness of Christ. Not because we're just becoming more moral, but because our very nature has been changed so that we become more like Jesus, who was both fully man and fully God. So becoming a Christian involves becoming a new creation, with new desires, new ambitions, new affections, new aspirations, all by the power of God, all by the unmerited grace of God, all for the glory of God. See, in Christ, we receive the blessing that he, that Christ, earned through his perfect life. Psalm 65 verse 4 says, How blessed is the one whom you choose to bring near to you to dwell in your courts. God has provided a way of salvation for his people by sending his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who accomplished that way of salvation. There is no other way to stand blamelessly before God apart from God's qualifications and the provision of God in Christ Jesus our Lord who took our sins and who took God's wrath against our sins as our substitute in our place. This brings us to the final section of our psalm, the part which describes Christ entering heaven's gates, demonstrating once and for all that God's criteria that have been laid out here have been met and proving that he, that Christ, is the king of all glory. So let's continue by looking at verses 7 to 10. David writes, Lift up your heads, O gates. And be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Now in this section of the psalm, Christ is doing what nobody else was qualified on their own to do. He is ascending the hill of the Lord to stand in his holy place. Christ rides into heaven in victory, having perfectly accomplished what he was sent to do, to give his life as a ransom for many. Revelation 21 describes the, the new Jerusalem 
for us. John tells us that, that one of the angels in heaven who had held the seven bowls of the seven plagues, he says, quote, he carried me, in, uh, carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. Can you imagine that? This, this heavenly city coming down, 12 gates, 12 angels, one at each gate. Keep that picture fresh in your mind. And imagine the Father shouting out, instructing the angel at the gate, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. The gates are instructed to be opened for the king of glory as he, as he comes in, having been victorious in battle over death, over sin. You, you can imagine one angel shouting out, Who is the king of glory? And the others responded by singing in unison, The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. It is the Lord himself who has done it. It is the Lord himself who has provided the very thing that he requires. A perfect substitute. A sinless Savior who has lived up to the standards that are necessary for anyone to enter into his holy dwelling place. To enter into heaven. A second time, the declaration is made. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors that the King of glory may come in. Which is followed once again by the question and response, Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Now maybe this is simply repeated for emphasis. You can't miss the fact that there's some repetition here. Maybe that's done for emphasis' sake. It's not that the gates weren't opened up the first time. Of course they were. So it's possibly repeated for emphasis, but there's a change that takes place between these repetitions, between the first and second times that it's said. The first time, the response to who is this king of glory is the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. That's the first response. But the second time that it's asked, the response is the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So maybe we need to consider the possibility that this is two separate entrances. The first by himself as he returns from battle, and the second with his army. That's what the word hosts refers to. So the second time, we seem to have the implication that Jesus is the great king of, of all glory who is riding into heaven's gates with an army of warriors coming behind him. Listen to what we read in Revelation 19.14 about the second time that Jesus rides into heaven. It says, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. As one commentator notes of this, he says, quote, This second shout seems to be hinting that our king will ride up to the gates of Zion, the heavenly city, a second time with the hosts, a crowd of saints following him, victorious in battle. End quote. The question is, friend, on that final day, will you be among those hosts? Will you be a part 
of that army? Will you be among those saints? And the answer is found not by looking forward to that day, but by examining yourself right now. Where you are today, how you are today. Have you stopped trusting in yourself and in your own goodness and your own righteousness before God? Have you forsaken all of those things, realizing that you have fallen so far short that you can't even claim them before God? See, friends, the reality is he knew. He knew that you would not qualify to enter on your own. And so Jesus, who is eternally God, stepped down out of heaven, took on flesh, and made a way for you. So won't you lift up your head and see that God has made a way for you to dwell in his holy place by putting your faith in Jesus, by believing savingly in the work of Jesus If you have put your confidence for salvation, if you've put your faith in Christ, you can know for certain that you will be part of that great crowd one day. We could not go up to him, and so he came down for us. We could not dwell in his place, and so he came and dwelled among us in order that he could bring us with him into his holy place, purified, forgiven, washed clean from every stain of sin in the oceans of his incredible and unfathomable grace. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it gives us a right view of you and a right view of ourselves. Thank you, O Lord, for teaching us to forsake any claim to goodness or righteousness within ourselves. And thank you for the perfect sacrifice that was provided for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, O Lord, to have a deeper faith in him, Help us to look to him and to trust in what he did in our place, not only taking our sins, but taking your wrath against those sins as our substitute and clothing us in robes of righteousness, all for the glory of Christ and his namesake. Teach us, O Lord to live our lives, to live every second in light of these glorious, unfathomable truths that Christ would be glorified in our lives and that we would be conformed to his image, knowing that you are causing all things, even the coronavirus, to work for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purposes. All for the glory of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.
This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep going closer to Jesus. Take me deep.